If you have your Bibles, please take them now, or you can take the Bible there in the pew in front of you and turn with me to Psalm number 119. Today we are looking at the next to the last section of this psalm, uh, verses 161 through 168. Um, as we do near the end of this psalm, it is good to be reminded where we have come from. Uh, the psalmist opened the psalm with the declaration that blessed are those who, uh, to summarize his words, who love, who learn, and who live out the word of God. Um, the psalmist then lays out his case for the life of holiness that he has pursued uh, according to God's call and then speaks of the persecution that has come into his life. As we neared the middle of the psalm, the expression of suffering uh, got greater and darker as the psalmist suffered under the weight of that persecution. And yet even in the midst of his suffering, there's been a firm dedication a firm resting upon God's word, which reveals to us God's promises and is also the guide for us to how we live. And so with that brief summary in mind, let us turn now to Psalm 119, beginning in verse 161. Rulers persecute me without cause, but my heart trembles at your word. I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, O Lord, and I follow your commands. I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. I obey your precepts and your statutes, for all my ways are known to you. Let us pray. God and Father above, give us the Spirit so that I may proclaim the words that your people need to hear and so that your people will hear the words that will draw them to greater love for you and to greater obedience. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many times as I preach, one of my goals is not merely to uh, give you the, the meaning and the application of the text, but also to occasionally give you tools that you can utilize in your own personal study of the Word as you look at the Word. One of those tools that I want us to be aware of today is the idea of theme words or theme phrases. Words or phrases that the authors of the Scripture will repeat in order to highlight uh, something that is important in the particular passage. One of the clearest versions of this is the last few chapters of the, of the book of Judges where the, the author of the book of Judges begins each statement, each section with the refrain, with the statement, there was no king in Israel and the people did what was right in their own eyes. And as the author of Judges repeats that for us, he is letting us know that the nation of Israel needed a king in order to facilitate their pursuit of holiness and their growth as the people of God. Our psalmist has used that throughout the psalm, and he uses this again today in our particular passage as we see one word that shows up three times in our passage, and it is the word love. The psalmist in 163 says he loves God's law or God's instructions. 
In 165, he says, great peace have they who love your instructions. And there in the second half of 167, speaking of God's statutes or decrees, he says, I love them greatly. The psalmist is not at a loss for words. He is not uncreative. He is seeking to highlight the fact that God blesses those who love the words of God. Now, why should we love the words of God? It's because they reveal to us who God is and what he has done for his people. There's a man that I've met downtown that I've had a chance to talk to over the, the last few years who recently or a few years ago lost his wife. And as an older gentleman, as he's contemplating his own mortality, one of his goals is to take letters that he and his wife had written while they were in college and separated from each other and put them into a computer so that he can pass them along to his children. He loves those words because he loved the one who wrote those words. And so the psalmist loves the word of God because he loves the God who gave those words, who reveals his attributes, who reveals his works of creation and salvation, and who reveals what God requires of his people. If you love God, you should love his word. In fact, if you do not love reading and studying the word of God, you should search your heart to make sure that you truly love the God who gave us those words. So our passage today focuses on the love that the psalmist has for the word of God. And it shows us three benefits that he received because of the love of that word. Benefits that come to him even in the midst of suffering. Today, you and I will learn that a love for God and his word leads to joy, leads to peace, and leads to a hopeful obedience. First, the love for God's word leads to joy. The psalmist opens with another declaration that he is being persecuted. He says, rulers persecute me without cause. He has talked about persecution coming to him in the form of people lying about him, of, in the form of people tempting him to compromise his pursuit of holiness and his love for God's word, and then also talking about threats of and outright violence done against the psalmist. And he says, rulers, people of power, people who have authority and the weight of the government behind them persecute him without cause. That, that phrase there, without cause, is one that he has repeated throughout the psalm and is one that we would do well to consider for just a few moments. As we think about the words that God has given to us in the scripture, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says that the message of the cross is the foolishness to those who are perishing. He goes on to say in Galatians chapter 5 that that same message is an offense to those who are dying. The gospel, the message that we need a savior, that we cannot save ourselves, that we must put our hope, our trust, our faith in Jesus, in Christ alone. That message is offensive to the world who does not know Jesus. 
Other religions that promise a heaven or a type of salvation say that you can be good enough in your own power in order to earn heaven, to earn salvation. But the true message of the scripture says that we are without hope, that our righteousness is as filthy rags and we desperately need a savior. And that message offends the world. And that message will bring persecution to the church, regardless of how the church acts. And so Jesus calls us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. Peter, in his first letter, says that we are called to live a life of holiness and kindness before the world around us. The temptation, though, is to give the world cause to persecute us. The temptation is when the world calls us names to call them names back. When the world treats us unfairly, oh, be careful because I'll show you what unfairly means when it comes to treating people poorly. When we bring persecution upon ourselves because we are rude, because we are offensive, we do harm to the gospel that is an offense all on its own. Jesus calls us to love those who persecute us, to offer a drink of cool water to those who offer us anger and hatred, to be the type of people that show the love of Christ as he showed it by saying from the cross, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so the, the, the psalmist highlights the fact that he is persecuted without cause and he is persecuted by those with power, but notice what he says. He says, but my heart trembles at your word. I am awestruck, the psalmist said, by the words of promise, the words of power, the words that reveal the glory of God that come to me through your word, O Lord. We were talking about Ezekiel chapter one in Sunday school today, a passage that has stumped commentators with its meaning over many, many years. But the last verse of Ezekiel chapter one, Ezekiel says, in this way, I saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And in chapter two, Bruce told us in Sunday school that, that Ezekiel falls upon his face as he is confronted by the glory of God. His strength leaves him and he can do nothing but bow in glory to God. Like Jeremiah, like Isaiah before him, Ezekiel is going to have revealed to him that the people of Israel will reject his message. And yet he is given this vision so that he could know the power, the might, the glory of God, so that he would know who to worship when even the powerful come to him and persecute him for the glorious message that he has been given. The psalmist, just through the words that God has revealed to him, is so awestruck by the glory of God that even though the powerful of this world direct persecution against him, he still is in awe and wonder at the glory of God as revealed in his word. He goes on to say in verse 163, because of the word of God, he says, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. 
The psalmist says, I hate that which is untrue. And just so you don't miss the meaning of it, he gives us a second word that means hate with great emotional vehemence, with great emotion. I hate falsehood because I love your law. Why would loving the law lead us to hate and abhor falsehood? Because God's word is truth. John 17, Jesus is praying for the disciples, praying for the church. And he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. If we truly love the law, the instructions, the truth of God, then everything false we will hate. When God's name is smeared with falsehood, when God's church is smeared with falsehood, we will hate that falsehood. We will hate the lies of the world. Even when we are tempted to speak them ourselves, we will hate those lies. Now notice if we take verse 163 and 161 together, the without cause, notice that we can hate the falsehood without being rude. You can point out the lies of the world around us without pointing out that you hate the person who speaks those lies. We can hate falsehood without being offensive. We can hate lies without being rude. In fact, you and I are called to speak that truth that is revealed in Scripture in such a way that is defined as love. Yes, we confront sin, but we do so in a way that expresses the love of God. God hates the sin in our lives, and yet he sent his son in love to provide a way of salvation. And so the psalmist, being persecuted without cause, hating and abhorring falsehood, finds joy even in the midst of persecution. Verse 162, I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. Rejoice is a word that means to be pleased with, to be delighted or glad in, to have an attitude of enjoyment or fondness, which implies love. And notice that nothing has changed in his life. The declaration of joy comes right after the declaration of persecution. Yes, he is still being desperately honest with God about how he feels about the persecution. None of those words are changed either. But even in the midst of the sorrow, even in the midst of the hatred of sin, even in the midst of the weight of persecution, he finds joy. The word of God is like the spoils of war to him that are stumbled upon in a field. They are glorious and unearned. Matthew 13, 44 talks about the kingdom in such a way that it is described as a treasure found in a field that the man sells everything that he has in order to possess that treasure. That is the feeling that the psalmist has even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of suffering because of the love that he has for the law of God. When God's providence is a hard providence, when God leads you into the valley of the shadow of death, what is your reaction? Are you so full of awe for God and love for the promises that he has revealed that joy marks your suffering? Not joy to the exclusion of sorrow or struggle, but a joy that gives a foundation, undergirds 
that sorrow or struggle and bubbles through. Paul tells us in Romans 8.18 that our present suffering, the things that we go through today at the hands of the world, the suffering that we have today is nothing compared to the future glory that awaits. And he tells us this in the context of calling you and I to rejoice in suffering. Think about an eternity of heaven and compare it to the suffering that you are going through today. That will feed a joy in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your suffering, that the world that even you and I sometimes cannot understand. So the glorious treasure of the word of God, love for that word and for that God leads us to joy. Love also leads us, we see in verses 164 and 165, leads us to peace. Verse 164 says, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Throughout the history of the Jewish people and even the history of the early and the medieval church, this verse was taken and the day was divided up into seven portions. The seven holy hours they are called in liturgical churches. And those seven hours would be times where people would step away from what they were doing and they would offer a few moments of praise and prayer to God. This boils over into our world today, even as words like matins or vespers. Um, those are two of the seven hours that uh, are the liturgical hours where people will come apart and praise. And while that's a good practice, it's a practice that may have two dangers to it. The first is that we could put a legalistic view on these seven hours that we have throughout the day. Well, I prayed my seven times today, so I'm good with God. I don't need Jesus because I prayed those seven times. We can move into a legalism. The other danger is that we kind of miss the picture here that the psalmist is giving us in this poetry. Paul says in, in one of his letters to the Thessalonians, he says, pray without ceasing. And the, and the sense that we get here in verse 164 is that we are to praise without ceasing. Every moment of our day should be marked by praise, by worship, by laud to God. Added to the call to pray without ceasing is a call to praise, to worship without ceasing, to live out our day proclaiming the wonder of the glorious God who condescended to offer salvation to rebellious humanity. And the psalmist says that his entire day, his entire life is marked by praise to God because great peace have they who love your law and nothing can make them stumble. Loving God's law, loving the God who gave the law leads us to a strong, to a secure peace, to a peace that cannot be shaken. Peace is not merely the absence of conflict. The psalmist is still in the middle of persecution, still being lied about, still being tempted to sin, still being threatened with violence. Peace is the well-rounded life, the restored relationship with God, with others, and with self. Peace is a state of unimpaired relationship with God and the well-rounded life that comes because of that unimpaired, unimpeded relationship with God. 
The great peace is described as strong and secure because it leads to the strength to not be swayed by the stumbling blocks that, that the world brings into your life, stumbling blocks of persecution, of temptation, of illness. And because the peace is revealed in God's word and rooted in God himself, it is a secure peace. It's not a peace that I purchase. It's not a peace that's based on my pursuit of holiness. It is the peace of God purchased by God through the cross. And because of that, it is secure and strong. A love for God's word that leads us to awe and joy found in God will also lead you to peace, even in the middle of struggle. This is a peace that passes all understanding. The peace that Paul proclaims in Philippians 4, 5 through 7. You might be at odds with family, with friends, with enemies, with the world, but your peace with God is secure because it was purchased by God in the work of salvation. Seek God in his word during times of struggle so that you can find his peace. Love for God's word leads to joy. Love for God's word leads to peace. And love for God's word leads to a hopeful obedience. Throughout the Psalm 119, as we have looked at the words of the psalmist, we have seen over and over again the truth that those who love God's word will want to learn God's word. And as they love and learn God's word, they will want to live that word in a way that brings honor and glory to God. And the psalmist declares for us three times that he will follow and obey God's command. Verse 166, I will follow your commands. Verse 167, I obey your statutes. Verse 168, I obey your precepts and your statutes. And this obedience is rooted in two things. The first thing is that love of God. He obeys the statutes because he loves them greatly. Do you love the law of God? We talk about loving the word of God. We talk about loving the Bible and we can honestly say most of the time, yes, I love the Bible. I love all of God's revealed word. But let's narrow that down just a little bit. Do you love the law? Do you love the thou shalt and thou shalt nots? Do you love that call to holiness that God puts on your life? I hope you do. Because God calls us to be holy as he is holy. He is a holy God and his law reveals to us that glorious beauty of God, his holiness. And so we should love even the law of God and loving the law of God should lead us to want to be holy as he calls us to be holy. But the second thing that motivates the psalmist obedience is found there at the end of verse 168. For all my ways are known to you. Psalm 139 beautifully describes for us the glory of God's omniscience. Everything I do, O Lord, the psalmist says, when, when I rise up in the morning, when I go to bed in the evening, you are there and you know before a word hits my lips, you knew the thought, even before the thought that caused that word to hit my lips, you knew what I was thinking. As we read in our New Testament passage today, the things that are done in secret will be revealed. Why will they be revealed? 
Because God already knows. There is no sin that can be done in total secret. You may think you have your parents or your friends or your spouse or your fellow church members fooled in your walk of holiness. But God knows and all things will be revealed. That should scare you just a little bit. Because each and every one of us has those dark areas of our lives that we have everybody, even yourself, fooled. And yet God knows. Now, God has provided a means of salvation, which we will which we've we've touched on already. We'll consider in a little bit more fullness here later on. So there is salvation offered even for those secret sins. But everything that you and I have done will be revealed. God knows, God sees there is no such thing as a secret sin. So the psalmist love for God, the psalmist love for God's word leads to an obedience. And yet this is a hopeful obedience. Why do I say hopeful? Verse 166 opens with, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Some of your translations may say, I hope for your salvation. It's the same word there. It's a it's a waiting with an expectation that something promised will surely, will most definitely come to pass. Even in the little bit of the word of God that the psalmist would have had, there is revelation that God will save his people, that God will rescue his people, and that that saving, that rescuing is not just here in the present, but is an eternal salvation, an eternal rescue that comes to the people of God. Once again, our New Testament reading today says, fear not those who can kill you and then no longer have any power over you. Fear the one who can take your life, but also send you to hell. That's the awe and the trembling that we have at the beginning of this section. But the flip side of the one who can take your life and send you to hell is the one who in Christ can also take your life, but bring you to his bosom can draw you close, can draw you near to him. And so we wait on those promises, those, that promised rescue to come to us from the Lord. And as we wait, we follow his commands. Our last two sections have reminded us that God's law is established forever. Verse 152, long ago, I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever Verse 160, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. And so the psalmist is reminded that regardless of what happens to me here on this earth, I have those eternal promises that God has given to me. And so I wait now for your rescue, knowing that in your goodness and in your sovereignty, that rescue may not come until I see you face to face. The waiting, the obeying God, this hopeful obedience links us once again to God's promises for the final restoration of creation. You and I will suffer in this world, but we need not fear Satan. We need not fear human enemies. We need not fear the ravages of nature. We have a God who has promised redemption and restoration for his people, and he will provide that perfect restoration according to his promises. Love for God leads us to joy. Love for God's word also leads us to peace and to a hopeful obedience. 
Many of the Puritan authors oftentimes spoke about the affections. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called A Treatise on the Religious Affections, and Thomas Chalmers, earlier in the Puritan history, wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The point of the Puritan focus on affections was rooted in this love that we have been looking at today, a love for God and a love for his word. You and I are faced day in and day out with a temptation to place our love, our affections on the created things. We may love the beauty of nature and we may be tempted to place our hope in the beauty of nature. We may be tempted to an idolatrous relationship and, and part of that temptation is to put our hope, our faith, our love in that idolatrous relationship. You could be tempted to put your hope in sexual temptations. Whatever it may be, the world seeks to tempt us to put our love, our affections on created things. And we need, as Chalmers wrote, the expulsive power of a new affection. Because, see, God calls us to love him. And he calls us to love him with every ounce of our being, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, mind and with all of our strength, with absolutely everything that makes us up, the seed of the will, our physical wants and desires, our appetites, our needs. We are called to love God with every fiber and ounce of your being. And yet the reality is that we don't. Our natural bent is to love ultimately ourselves with everything that we are. And yet through the work of Jesus Christ as applied to your heart by the Holy Spirit, God provides that explosive, expulsive power that expels the old affections and gives us a new affection. God provides the means whereby our loves are taken from the things of this world and then placed on the creator of this world through the gospel. By the power of the Holy Spirit, your affections are being reshaped as you read, as you study, as you obey the word of God. Plead with God to strengthen your affection, your love for the glorious promises of his word as you seek joy, peace, and hopeful obedience in Christ. Let us pray. Glorious God and Father, we do thank you for these psalmist words, these reminders that you give us joy, you give us peace, you give us the strength for a hopeful obedience, even in the midst of struggle. And so, Lord, we plead with you today to strengthen us by your spirit so that our love for you and our love for your word may grow. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As you go this week, please, please take this blessing with you. May the love of our Lord, of our Father above, the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this sermon from Fairly Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. To find out more about our church and its ministries, please find us on Facebook or visit us at www dot arpchurchfairly.org that's www.arp 
C-H-U-R-C-H-F-A-I-R-L-E-A dot O-R-G. Have a blessed day.